Would you be willing to help me later today? I have some questions that, that I'm hoping that maybe you can help me with. Is that all right? Okay. I mean, there aren't many stories in the Bible that I can say this of, but this is one of those stories in Scripture where I have to ask myself, what's the point? What, what's the point? So um, you will remember that uh, in our studies in the book of Genesis so far, We've seen uh, that early on, uh, sin led people to hurt others, even to murder them. And it didn't matter whether the person murdered was even your own brother, or whether it was someone who was much younger than you, and with very little provocation against you, you murdered them. And that's what the early history of our world teaches us in the book of Genesis. Didn't matter whether they were family, younger, or had not really terribly hard provoked you. Shockingly, of course, some incredibly interesting things came up between these two murders. And uh, we see, for example, that uh, Cain fathered a child, and then he built a city, and he named it after his child. That Lamech, one of his descendants, was a polygamist that Jabal was the father of all those people who take up ranching, and Jubal was the father of everyone who plays a musical instrument. Did you know that? You know, there's a heritage for you, according to the scripture. Tubal-Cain worked uh, with bronze and iron, and Lamech murdered a young man. These are all the things that happen, and in those things we see that big city life and human achievements cannot save us. Just as uh, that family line started out with a murder, so a murder ends it, as it were. None of these things make us a better person in and of themselves. It doesn't mean they're inherently evil. It just means they're not capable of changing our lives in and of themselves. So, if these things cannot save us, what can? Well, you remember as we studied the book of Genesis, we saw that there was a family line that was being traced, the lineage of this family, traced out for us. And in Seth's genealogy in Genesis chapter 4, we hear once again of our promised Savior, Jesus, who is the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It was in the arena of these shocking murders uh, occurring that we uh, read, surprisingly, that it was at this time that people began to not only call upon, but to call out the name of the Lord. They began sharing their faith with people around them. How many of you have ever shared your faith with someone who was a murderer? How about just a criminal of any kind? Yeah, okay, yeah. And so it's in this arena. While humans are at their worst, God is still at his best. He's still working in our world despite the rise and success of evil. The idea in Genesis 4.26 is that people began sharing their faith in a very public way, and folk were eagerly listening. They wanted to hear the message that was being shared with 
with them about God. They were eager to hear it. So, what is it that can save us? Well, only Jesus. All other human achievements, good or bad, right? They cannot save us. Jesus can. Well, then we looked at Adam and Seth's family line in Genesis chapter 5, and we saw that there were 10 generations from creation to the flood listed for us. And with the name of Noah, we hear this promise that is very comforting. It says that this man is going to bring human beings some rest, some needed rest, some relief, some comfort from the painful toil of human life. And especially regarding the damaged ground. The topic of the flood usually, I think, gives us reason to pause. Uh, it certainly does me. Because uh, when I keep reading, I see some staggering things that are occurring. Here is that chart that I told you I made and wouldn't show up here a few weeks back. It is a chart that actually lists the ages before the flood. Now, there are only nine people mentioned there because, you know, one guy was taken to heaven. <laughs> so we can't really count his age particularly. But here you see there's almost no variation. There's really one dip. There's a little blip. You know, almost all of these people lived 900 years. And the guy, you know, who, who's just the little blip, he lived 895 years. You know, big change, right? But the one dip that's there, 777 years old. Wow. But our human lifespan changed dramatically after the flood. We see the drop from Noah, who lived 950 years, to Joseph, who lives 110 Wow, right? So when we put these two charts together, what do we see? Well, we see this massive drop. I mean, wow. And it begins right about here. And it goes down to this guy right there, right? Noah. At Noah's time, life took a dramatic plunge downward. What a staggering loss of longevity. Staggering. But back to our history in the book of Genesis, right? We're looking at Adam and Eve, and they give birth to Cain, and he kills his brother Abel, so he's gone. Cain pretty much runs away. He breaks away from Adam and Eve. He breaks away from the Garden of Eden, which is still on planet Earth at the time, but that's where people would go and worship God, and he breaks away from that. And most importantly, Cain's entire family line seems to break away from God. That seems to be their goal. When they break away from family and they break away from geography near the Garden of Eden, they're really breaking away from God. And so we have this distinct separation that is shown to us in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 with two separate family lines. So what would happen... If these two family lines got back together, what would happen? That 
is what Genesis 6 wants to detail for us. We read in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 3, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were good and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. This passage teaches us that the line of Seth, the ones here characterized as the sons of God, chose wives without regard to whether those women were godly. Doesn't say necessarily that they married into Canaanite line, but it doesn't say they did not. They just didn't put God in the equation when they got married. They chose whomever they chose, whomever. Now, what's interesting about that is it might even imply that many of them married more than one wife whomever. So why do we believe that this represents the uh, sons of Seth? Well, this passage leads to God's assessment, right, that everyone's inclinations, everyone's thoughts were evil continually. Godly people had become worse in character because they married without regard to God. Married without regard. These marriages led to moral decline. That's the way the story is structured. In fact, the entire world became worse in character, we're told, because godly people were no longer a positive influence here on planet Earth. When you and I choose not to put God in our lives, then the rest of the world suffers as well. How does it go, uh, you know... Uh, Life gets bad when, when good people do nothing. Well, it also gets bad when good people do the wrong thing. And so in making these poor choices, they were doing exactly what Eve did before them. If you look at the column on the left, this is what the Bible says us about Eve's sin. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And when we read our passage about Seth's family line, we read the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were good, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. Not only the same Hebrew words used, but even in the same order as what occurred earlier in the history of Eve. Appearances, we discover, are deceiving. We need God to empower us to look upon the heart. To look upon the heart. We so often just look at human appearance. And that's good enough for us. Eve did not look at the way things really were. I mean, can you imagine you're going to eat a piece of fruit and that's going to make you incredibly wise? How is that reality? Right? Not only did she not do this, not only did she not live her life according to reality, neither did the pre-flood generation of godly men. They looked 
I should say it's like this. Let's start with the beginning and end. They looked and they took. And that was it. That was it. Marriage was meant to be a divine blessing, I'm sure of it. But it became a merely human enterprise. So what the men in Genesis saw, Genesis 6 saw as good, turned out to be the worst evil this world has ever known. In fact, when the Bible wants to talk about how evil the world will become, it uses the pre-flood stories of evil to describe it, doesn't it? What these men saw as good turned out to be the worst evil the world has ever known. This is what the flood story teaches us. What it tells us is that human choices are not good just because human beings make them. I want to say that again. Human, human choices are not good just because humans make them. I suspect, having had a chance to uh, listen to uh, this current generation of, of people, young people, that this is a fallacy that they've bought into. That my choice is right, my choice is good, because I've made it. Now, I don't think this generation is the only one that's ever thought that. Not if I'm reading this part of the Bible correctly. I think this has been a problem for humanity for a long, long time. It just surfaces, it seems to me, in much clearer ways nowadays. People have this idea that, you know, if I'm making a choice, that makes it good. And you should respect every choice I make, regardless of whether you think it's good. It's good because I made it. Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah so will it be when the Son of Man returns. So I can't say that I'm surprised to see this idea come so strongly in, in vogue, you know, um, this idea that human choices are good just because humans make them. Which, of course, brings us to the opposite of uh, similarity, a vast contrast. You remember what we re read earlier in the book of Genesis, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. But when we get to the flood story, we read, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth. What a tremendous, ugly contrast, right? So what could God do with the mess that we human beings have made? What could he do? Which brings us to another rather sharp contrast, because back when Cain murdered his brother Abel, God kept Cain safe from murderous harm, right? You remember that? I mean, I suspect God did this uh, to help future generations see what the outcome would be if you let someone like a murderer continue on. What's going to be the outcome? Because, you know, remember early on, Cain's complaint was, it's too much. I can't take it, God. It's too horrible. Anyone who meets me is going to kill me. And the Lord says, no. I'm going to keep you safe. Is that the same decision that God makes regarding the pre-flood people? Does he keep them safe? 
There is a different outcome, but there's a similar process, it seems to me, at least in one way. God always does look very deeply and very clearly into things before he makes a decision. And so we read God talking to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And then, of course, when Cain says, I don't know, I'm not my brother's keeper, you know, kind of thing, God says, listen to me, the ground itself is crying out. And obviously, God is listening, right? And then we see regarding the antediluvians, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great. One of the amazing things about the biblical stories is that God never seems to just say, hey, I know this is the way it is on planet Earth. I know it because I'm God and I know everything. No, God always investigates. At least that's what we read about him in Scripture. He always checks it out to make sure, as it were, that the data is correct. Not for his sake. It seems to me more for our sake that this is reported. God wants us to know that he's always fair. How else could he describe it? He could just say, well, you know, I'm doing the right thing and I'm always fair. And you might say, well, prove it. God does prove it, and you don't even have to ask. He always investigates things first. As sinners, I think we need to be convinced that he knows. Did you know that the narrator of the biblical story often confirms that God knows? Even in these stories, the narrator will go on and confirm what God has said and what God has seen and what God has heard. God has personally looked into this. He's seen it for himself and he's listened to expert testimony according to the Bible. What do we mean by that? Did you know that in Scripture, the earth, which is sometimes said to be a friend, the earth receives, the earth resists, and the earth even is said to record. The earth receives Abel and others so that they might find rest in the earth in death. The earth resists Cain's act of murdering his brother. How does it do that? It curses him from the earth, as it were, and it even speaks against him when he says, I don't know where my brother is. The earth also records, as it were, Cain's foul act. And God is listening. God is listening. This, I think, is what Job means when he says, O earth, do not cover my blood. Let my outcry find no resting place. Job 16, 18. Isaiah echoes this when he anticipates uh, the day when the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no longer cover its slain. Isaiah 26, 21. God is listening, even to the earth. And the earth has something to say about how badly we human beings treat each other. God listens to expert testimony, and that's one of the ways we know we're persuaded that he is fair. There's one more thing we should see before we summarize, and then I want you to put your thinking cap on with me. You remember that we've been tracing... The idea, you know, God made this promise clear back in the early part of Genesis, chapter 3, that he would put enmity between, right, 
between one seed and the woman seed, right? Between the seed we call Jesus and all of, all of humanity. God has put enmity there through Jesus, is what I should say. He's put enmity between the devil and Satan in the sense that we no longer wholesale want to buy into what the devil is doing. We don't. And God has put that there. And he's doing that through this family line, which he continually tells us, you need to expect a savior. And so when we read the story of Seth and Noah, we see that Methuselah had a son named Lamech, and Lamech fathered a son named Noah, and we get into the New Testament and we discover that Jesus' family heritage includes these people. Right? It includes it. So here is our promised Savior in this story. So I want to summarize a little bit, though, what we've seen so far. Humanity's promised Savior is still on track, which is a good thing for us. Human choices are not good just because a human being made them. The sin of the antediluvians was similar to the sin of Eve. The outcome, though, for Cain was very different than that of the antediluvians. He survived his violence. They did not theirs. God investigates everything. And then I want to, I'm going to back up here, because I have a few things I want to say about, no, I guess not. I thought I did. Um, Here's a summary, though, of a one-hour presentation that I made once about God and sadness. So I want to talk about this for a minute. What is the Genesis flood story about? Is it a story of God regarding his sadness over humanity's evil? Is it a story about God's sadness? And, and so in an hour, I went through an entire set of biblical texts. I mean, tons of them, beyond what anybody I think had ever seen before. I did this at a camp meeting once. And I, and I know afterwards people said to me they were tremendously surprised to see that the Bible records again and again and again and again God's pain over humanity's evil. Here's what that summary would be about, though. Throughout Scripture, we see that God suffers immense pain because people senselessly reject him and falsely accuse him. We also see that God suffers with us when we suffer every pain that we experience, God experiences as well. And then God even suffers for us, according to Scripture. Read the book of Isaiah. Is this what the flood story is primarily about, the pain of God and regarding human evil? Or is it about... You know, ungodly people making bad choices versus godly people making good choices, you know. Uh, we read about the violence that was overtaking the earth in the Genesis story of the flood. But we also see elements uh, of people making different choices, of worshiping God. Is it a story about God's grace? We read in the scripture about all these evil people and God's statement that he's going to blot out all these people. And that says, but... Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Is it a story about grace? God's grace. 
Is it a story about obedience, and not just human obedience, though clearly uh, when God said, Noah, I want you to build an ark. And Noah and his family build the ark, and they, then they put provisions in the ark, just like God said to do, and then they enter the ark, as God told them to do. And even when God told them to enter the ark, they did. And what do the animals do? Two by two, seven by seven, they enter the ark. Is it a story about obedience? Is it a story about Noah preaching for 120 years? Is it a story of danger? I know for a fact that Hollywood has produced a Noah story, right? In the Hollywood version of the Noah story, are there graphic pictures of the dangers that the people outside the ark face? Are they highlighted even? Yes. Is that true also for the people inside the ark? Does it highlight the dangers to those inside? Mm -hmm. Does the Bible do that? So what is this story primarily about? Is it about the sadness and pain of God regarding humanity's evil? Is it about the difference between godly and ungodly choices? Is it about grace? Is it about obedience? Is it about Noah's preaching for 120 years? By the way, the Old Testament story doesn't even tell you that. Did you know that? You have to go to the New Testament to find that Noah was preaching for 120 years. Um, the Genesis story doesn't mention it at all. Is it about protecting the family lineage of Jesus? Clearly that does show up. Is it about danger for those outside the ark or those inside the ark? Thinking about, is it about obedience, for example? Let me give you a, a, a contrast so you know the difference of what I'm talking about. You know, it's clearly it shows God says build an ark, and they build it, and, you know, put provisions, and they do, and enter the ark, and the animals enter the ark. That's about obedience. How many of you have ever read the story of the fall of Jericho? You read it? So in the fall of Jericho, God says, I want you to do this and this and this and this and this. And then you get to the story itself, and it says, and they did this and this and this and this and this. That's a story about obedience. It is not a story about the fall of Jericho so much. When you get to the fall of Jericho, it takes about this many words to describe the fall of Jericho. God wants you to know that having those walls collapse did not take a lot of power from God to accomplish. It's no big deal. The obedience of Israel was the big deal. And so it shows up time and time again when we talk about building the sanctuary. Here's what I want you to build. Here's what I want you to make. And then here's how they made it. That's a story about obedience. But when you get to the ark story, in the book of Genesis, are there big details regarding how Noah was to build the ark? Big ones? Big on the same size as the fall of Jericho? Big on the same size as the building of the sanctuary? That big? Is it a story about obedience? I think sometimes when we look at this story, we, we're not quite sure what to do with it. Why? 
Because repetition is often the key to understanding a Bible story, isn't it? What God hammers on over and over again is often what you should take from the biblical story. But here, most of these ideas listed, they're mentioned more than once, but they're not exactly pounded on. Is the flood story, and here's the question that hardly ever gets asked, I think we're almost afraid to ask it, is the flood story primarily about how a greater violence is needed to stop the widespread violence being perpetrated on the earth? Is that what it's about? That God has to sweep everyone away? Have you ever wondered, you know, if the world was going down the tubes and they, people were destroying themselves and clearly all the stories of those murders and the idea that violence was widespread on the earth, why didn't God just let that violence take over? That would cleanse the earth, wouldn't it? Um, and, and when we ask that question, we have to face this question. Did the flood actually take care of man's sin problem? Did it disappear? It might have been slowed. I'll grant you that. It probably was slowed. Um, if for no other reason than the population was so much smaller. right? And of course you were dealing with people who are nicer people. Godly people for the most part. So help me out. What do you think the Genesis flood story is primarily about? You've got a Bible, probably in front of you, or one with you you brought. Look at Genesis 6 or 7 or 8. What do you think the flood story is primarily about? Okay, yeah. Not the present, but the future. Okay, yes. God's patience, yes. Okay, yep. God is a very patient person. There is no doubt about it. And this story helps teach it. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever wondered why God put him in the ark a week ahead of time? Say again. Build faith. Okay, build faith. As that possibility, certainly waiting builds trust sometimes. Um, sometimes it makes us impatient. What else? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> He's not the only one. I mean, uh, oftentimes we forget um, 
that even when it talks about you know the great dragon and serpent of old being thrown down from heaven, the Bible also makes it clear it wasn't like he went entirely against his will, right? I mean, he wanted to leave God. Uh, and so, you know, certainly this passage teaches that people turned their back on God, departed from God in a big way, uh, and that had consequences. There's no doubt about that. I've often wondered if the reason why God put uh, Noah and his family in the ark seven days ahead was because the violence was continuing to grow stronger and would have been directed against them. Uh, so in order to protect them and even the animals, uh, God put them in the ark early. I'm not sure if that's right, but I've certainly wondered it. Um, I can't imagine that, that during those last seven days that people were particularly nice. Yeah. Yep. And we do have an idea of Seventh-day Adventists, right, that uh, nature itself was impacted by human sin. We, we often forget that, but, you know, uh, when we read through the book Patriarchs and Prophets, for example, is it not true that one of the things that comes up, you ever wonder why God, you know, God is said to have provided clothing for Adam and Eve? Yeah, we read in Scripture to cover the shame of their nakedness, but beyond that, why do you and I wear clothing? Is it just for that? If you step outside and you don't have any of this on, how are you going to feel? It's cold. Well, where did that change, you know, occur? And I'd like to suggest that it occurred right when sin began on planet Earth. The atmosphere itself changed. It got colder. And by the way, some people, you know, mistakenly think that God is the one who sacrificed the animals you know, that were used as the clothing, the skin, the clothing for Adam and Eve. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible everywhere assumes that human beings sacrifice. The Bible only says God used the skins of the animals to clothe Adam and Eve. That's all it says. So you need to remember that when you think of that story. So again, what do you think this story is primarily about? And this flood story, by the way, is the biggest story in mm, Seth's family line. I mean, it takes up chapters. Obviously, it's very important. The redemption of a remnant. Okay, yes. And I think that's been uh, heralded pretty well by Seventh-day Adventists uh, in, in remnant thinking. And uh, I'm not opposed to that. The Bible does say uh, in all kinds of places that, you know, a remnant is going to be saved. Jesus speaks about this little flock and so on. But at the same time, the Bible also has some other things to say, which sometimes surprise us. They don't seem to be exactly the same as, you know, a small group of people. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and tribe and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out, Salvation to our God and to the Lamb. 
And I could give you a list of text after text after text, which clearly teaches that not just a remnant's going to be saved, but a massive group of people, according to Scripture, is going to be saved. So, yes, there's definitely a remnant, because, I mean, you know what? There's eight people in the ark? That's not too many. Uh, a lot of animals, more animals than people, um, without a doubt. Yes? Yeah, seems strange. Yeah, me too, clearly. Yes. About a choice that a person makes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Okay, yeah. Do you think we now live in a world that's continually evil, as evil as Noah's world? Or is it yet to get there? Which do you think? How many of you think our world is just as evil as Noah's world was? Raise your hand. A few of you? How many of you believe that we're not yet there, but we're headed there? More of you? Okay. Um, is God still doing what he can to prevent evil from growing stronger in our world? How can you and I cooperate with God in making sure that evil does not grow stronger? How can we? Which, of course, does, you know, kind of bring us to this question, you know, uh, when it comes to sort of arc thinking without being too literalistic. Are you and I in the ark or are we outside the ark? Are we embracing the promised redeemer? Are we living lives of grace and obedience? Do we make choices knowing that we need some external objective uh, source to check us? To make sure that our choices are actually good and not just good in our own eyes? Well, the story of Noah and the flood, it definitely makes me think. If you have some time this afternoon or over the weekend, why not reread it? Maybe we'll think again. What is it primarily about? Let's pray. Father God, 
Thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to study your word together and think about it. Thank you, God, for giving us grace, for offering us grace. Thank you that you work in our hearts and change our characters. We're certain that, you know, there was nothing good in and of their own self for Noah and his family members, but they only received good from you. Father God, we too want to have you change our lives and make us good. Would you work such that we could help you prevent evil from going stronger in our world, in this